Our scripture reading this morning is taken from uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 28 to 37. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Fig trees again. A couple weeks back in Life Group, we were talking about the event of uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree on the way in to Jerusalem and the oddness of that as well. So we've got that pop up again. Weird kind of story and reference. Uh, Speaking of weird stories and references, though, anybody remember the story of Chicken Little? Chicken Little? Uh, My wife recalled it being similar to The Boy Who Crawled Wolf, but it's actually a bit different when you remember the story. Chicken Little is a little chicken who loves walking in the woods, but one day as she's walking, an acorn drops and bonks on her head, and so she makes the only natural conclusion that she can from this event. The sky's falling, right? Now, in some versions of the story, Chicken Little runs to tell the lion about it, and others, it's a character named the Big Boss or the King. Uh, But in just about every version, she's joined by some others along the way. She runs into Ducky Lucky, Goosey Lucy, and Turkey Lurkey, who all each ask, What's all this commotion about? The sky is falling. How do you know? Oh, it hit you? Well, of course, let's go tell the king about it. So they they all go along until they run into Foxy Loxy. And when Foxy Loxy hears the news, he asks one additional question. Well, do you know where the king lives? Actually, now that you mention it, no, we don't. We don't know where the king lives. Well, I know where the king lives. Foxy Loxy answers, so he leads them right into his den. He gobbles them all up, one by one. I know, right? That's a dark kid story. <laughs> Super dark. But it sticks with us as a reminder, right? First, that we shouldn't get caught up in panic about things like the end of the world. But second, also, that there are those out there who will prey on those who do. We're nearing the end of our study in Mark's gospel. We've been going chapter by chapter through this uh, study some, with some snapshots of Jesus' life and ministry. We haven't looked at each, uh, each text and passage along the way, but we've got some snapshots. And uh, as we continue in, our, in this series in, gospel, in the gospel of Mark, our text today deals with end-of-the-world topics. In particular, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions about what it's going to be like waiting for his return in the end. Judge the nations to make all things new, bringing final salvation for God's people. 
unlike the story of Chicken Little, Jesus has shared some things in chapter 13 that really will happen. This is not like an acorn on the head and misinterpreted sort of situation. These are very real events of persecution and destruction. And in the midst of forecasting about that, Jesus gives some advice for what it looks like to be aware, to watch. Before we reflect on the text, though, that was just read for us, I, I want to set the scene because there's a lot we skipped in chapter 13. There's some important context that we need to understand in order to get the full picture of what Jesus is saying. First, it's important to note that Jesus' teaching here, it occurs in the context of his ongoing teachings and prophecies about what's going to happen to the temple and the sacrificial system that's central to the Jewish way of life. First thing. Also in chapter 11, Jesus had come into Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, but when he got there, he was indignant at the sinful, greedy, money-changing practices that had crept into the temple. So in a show of righteous anger, he clears out the temple, turned over the money-changing tables. Then here's where the fig tree portion comes in. Uh, This scene is accompanied by a rather strange incident along the way, where Jesus comes by a fig tree, goes to pick some fruit because he's hungry, but the fig tree doesn't have any. And so he gets angry and he curses it. It's a really strange story along the way. Uh, When the disciples pass by it again, they find out it actually had shriveled up and they're confused by this. This is supposed to be a kind of sort of symbolic parallel to Jesus' disappointment in the lack of spiritual fruit present in the temple system. And chapter 12, opposition to Jesus starts to ramp up, and the teachers of the law come ready for a debate. They come ready to try to catch Jesus in a trap. This includes the Pharisees, the moral teachers, the Sadducees, who are temple advisors, the Herodians, who are basically uh, King Herod's lackeys. They all try to slip him up with these these, uh, clever questions to get him to say something incriminating about himself. But he keeps backfiring at every shot. He keeps like outsmarting them, giving them these really uh, impressive answers, and the crowds keep growing and thinking he's more and more impressive. Now, at the opening of chapter 13, Jesus is leaving the temple courts after all the commotion. The disciples are just kind of in awe and wonder of the temple that they're seeing. Apparently, Herod has been making some improvements to the temple. He's been really building onto it and and making the complex really impressive, and they are impressed by what they see. They're just like like tourists in awe and wonder of all of this. And Jesus sees this, and he responds with this kind of -of matter-of-fact statement that this temple that they're so impressed with isn't going to last. In fact, it will be utterly destroyed with no stone left on top of one another, just as the first temple was destroyed during the exile years ago. What follows after that, the rest of chapter 13, is this kind of poignant discussion between Jesus and the disciples about what's going to lie ahead for them, what's coming up. It's easy for us to get lost in the language because of our own questions, assumptions, and theories about the end times, the end of the world. Um, But I think it's helpful to uh, read this through the lens of Jesus' pastoral concern, his friends, disciples who he's talking to here. Uh, As I was kind of hinting at a little bit earlier, uh, I like to imagine this uh, as like a father 
with a terminal illness who's, who's trying to distill every bit of wisdom and preparation that, can, uh, that he can into some sort of message that his kids will understand, knowing that there's not much time left. How can, how can we transmit all of the wisdom and information that might be helpful? Jesus has a similar challenge in front of him. He knows that he's headed to the cross. And even though he will be resurrected, he knows he's going to ascend to the Father afterwards. He only has precious little time with the disciples face-to-face here with them like that to help to prepare them for what is about to happen. So how does he share all of that? How does he prepare them for what's going to lie ahead, for his own death and resurrection, for the destruction of the temple that will come in the near future, for the ongoing persecution and trials the early church will face, as well as the internal threats that they'll face due to divisions and false teachers? But even as things fall apart here, there's also a day coming when Jesus will return to gather up all God's people and the final restoration redemption of all things. How does he prepare them to wait patiently for that? Well, Jesus says that we don't know the day or hour of that final restoration, so we ought to keep watch. Keep watch. A few thoughts for us on that this morning. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> it's all down here from here. I learned recently that there's actually an ongoing debate about that phrase. It's all downhill from here. Uh, Let's take a straw poll here this morning. If I say that it's all downhill from here, does that mean that things are going to get better or worse? Raise your hand if you think it means that things will get worse. Negative Nancy's here, right? Raise your hand if you think that things are going to get better. A few maybes, a bunch of positive Peters we see here, right? Context matters. It's all a matter of perspective, right? Similar to the glass half full or glass glass half empty sort of thing. For some people, downhill's the easy part, right? When you're traveling, uphill climb is nothing but work. When you go downhill, you're just coasting. I ran cross country in West Virginia. I know that. (laughs) Running downhill is a lot easier than running uphill. For others, The peak of the hill is the best part, right? It's the place where you have the best view. It's what you're trying to get to. If you're going downhill, it means that you're sliding down to the darkness of the valley. The best is behind you, right? It's a matter of perspective. The disciples have asked Jesus many times, when is it that your kingdom will come in power? Jesus finally gives them a hint. It will only be after things get much more difficult in the near future more difficult than they are even now. So basically, he says, it doesn't matter which you like better, uphill or downhill. It's whichever one's worse, that's the one to prepare for. There's a whole lot of detail in chapter 13 that folks try to use to map out charts for the end times. Uh, But Jesus says explicitly that no one knows when it will occur. In fact, I would say and comment on that, if you're trying to really pinpoint when Jesus is going to come back, Look for the time when someone is claiming that is absolutely the day it's going to happen, and it probably won't be that day. That's probably the best that we can figure out. What we do know, though, is that things will continue to get worse before all is restored. There was a time when enlightenment ideals pervaded our culture. There was this general sense that things were just going to keep getting better and better. Humanity keeps progressing, innovating, becoming more tolerant, more understanding. In that light, many theorize we'd eventually outgrow our need for God. 
as we embraced secular humanism and realized our full potential as a people. It has turned out a little differently from that, right? Instead, we're starting to see our own modern-day version of Babel. Groups are becoming more and more polarized. Truth is relativized. Uh, technological innovation seems to be driving us further apart rather than drawing us for, uh, closer together, even as we develop more sophisticated and more destructive means of force at the same time. There will be wars and rumors of wars, nations and kingdoms rising against each other, persecution from society and within our own households. The very places where we worship will be su subject to loss. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Be ready. These are just the birth pangs for the end. And in the end, which is Jesus' return, good news. Good news. That's important for us to remember this morning. Jesus' return is good news. I feel like I need to emphasize that because often our thoughts about Jesus' return or the end of the world are kind of eclipsed by these uneasy feelings about apocalyptic images, right? I mean, wars, division, persecution, uh, destruction, those don't exactly make us feel warm fuzzies inside, right? But the image that Jesus provides about a sign for the end is a fig tree whose branches are tender, beginning to bud the symbol of life, a promise that springtime and summer are right around the corner. It's just occurring to me as we say that how many times over the last month or so we've been like, spring is right around the corner and then another cold snap, right? Happens. But according to Jesus, all of these negative things that ramp up in life, wars and rumors of wars, persecution, weather anomalies, strife between people who should love each other, these things are just like the pangs of childbirth. While painful for the moment, there is incredible good news around the corner. And it's interesting what he doesn't say about us, right? Whenever there's incredibly negative things happening around us, trials, acorns that fall on our head, he doesn't say it's fake news. And he doesn't say panic because it's real. He doesn't even say, look, I'll show you a way to avoid it all. Just listen to me. Instead, Jesus says things throughout the Gospels like, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Because the suffering that we experience is it's a reminder that he is with us. We're participating with them. And that there's something better ahead. The Son of Man is returning. Enduring through the hardships of this broken world, they can shape us in valuable ways. But it's all ultimately of value because we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and bring his kingdom. That's it, right? We just wait. Just wait. Well, we have a task in the wait. Skip to somewhere. We'll come back to that. We have been given an important task while we wait. Uh, the Apostle Paul does, that's why. I, here next. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually had to deal with a peculiar problem with the church in Thessaloniki. Some of the believers there had apparently gotten into their heads that since Jesus was coming back any day now, they didn't really need to do much of anything. All they had to do was just 
Sit around and wait. In 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 11, it says, Paul saying, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. They're doing stuff, but not anything that's actually productive. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing this good. We can run into the same problem when thinking about the end times and Jesus' return. Some people can get so worked up trying to nail down dates and times, they become completely useless as witnesses for God's kingdom. Others can think so little about it that they have no sense of urgency to be about the business that Christ has left for us as representatives of his kingdom. Jesus explains that waiting for his return is like a man who went on a trip, hired some to watch his property while he was away. He gives a task for the wait. The church, as the people of God, have been given a task as we wait for Jesus' return. To preach the gospel to all nations, to make disciples. Every single congregation and denomination, no matter what their unique gifts and context that they might bring to, ta- to the table, we all take part in that same mission to some degree. We articulate it differently, but we all are doing the same thing if we are about the work of Jesus in the world. Our mission statement here at Smoky Row is that we join together, pursue God's love, become more like Jesus, to build God's kingdom through word and deed. This is just our repackaging of that, that same statement, right? we contextualize it for where we are. It's important that it's not a solo venture. This is not something that we're doing on our own as individuals. We can't do it as individuals. But with Christ's help, we're able to do it together. uh, We're able to rely on the, the unique gifts of the Spirit among us that all kind of interplay together to help us accomplish the work that Christ has given us to be his witnesses, to serve, to love God and love our neighbor. Well, and this is the good news, right? That Jesus has defeated the powers of sin and death. We've been forgiven, reconciled, redeemed, restored. Our hearts are softened and warmed toward love for God. We're gifted with the Holy Spirit that we can actually become more like Jesus. We can be stewards and witnesses that help to work against the forces of darkness in the world. And that even as we await, we can trust that he is going to return to put all things new, all things right. And we can begin that process with the power of the Holy Spirit here and now. It's important that we are about that task. Because if we are about the mission of Jesus we're a lot less likely to panic at distressing events in the world. doesn't mean that we won't ever have anxiety. doesn't mean that we won't ever have a response to things happening in the world, but it means that if we know where we are, what we have been made for, why we've been put here, if we're about the work of Jesus in our world, then we can know that what we're doing is meaningful, whether things are good or bad. If we're close to the heart of Jesus, we're a lot... Uh, we are a lot more unlikely to be fooled by opportunists trying to seize upon any, um, any trial or incident happening in the world. We don't know how long it will be until Christ returns. Jesus said he doesn't even know. The Father only knows. But we have a task for the wait. 
question for reflection for us. If Jesus returned today, what would you regret having left undone? Are there friends, coworkers, family members that you've known you should talk to, but you've been putting it off? Is there a mission or a passion that you felt called to pursue for God's kingdom, but you've been waiting for a more convenient time? Or maybe you've heard the good news of Jesus for yourself, but you've been holding him at an arm's length because you just haven't quite felt ready to make the leap yet. What are we waiting for? Whatever it is, stop putting it off. He has told us the way. Let's follow. I'll close by sharing this. Um, and my wife told me I can share this. When Lydia was in labor with Deegan, uh, I ended up being way more involved with the process than I had anticipated. Uh, pardon me if I've told any part of the story before. I'm going to tell it again. I had intended to just spend the whole time up by her, her face to help encourage her during this time. We'd practiced the breathing exercises and all that. But somehow, I got a lot more involved with the process as it went along. She had taken Pitocin to help get things going and started to help the contractions happen faster. And then she got not just one, but two epidurals. It didn't take on uh, both sides the first time, so she had to get it again on the second time. By that time, her legs were completely useless. She couldn't do anything on her own with those. And so I ended up having to help prop a leg up during, uh, during the, um, the whole process. Before long, I'm calling out instructions, too, trying to tell uh, Lydia what I can. At one point, the doctor had, uh, and the nurses had walked out of the room, and it's just me and Lydia. And I'm like, you're doing a great job, honey. <laughs> I think I can see the head. I couldn't see the head. I'll tell you that right now. I had no idea what I was looking for. And looking back now, I can be like, there's no way they would have left the room with me alone with her if it was anywhere close to the time. But I had no idea. I was looking for though. But I knew the right answer was great job. You're doing good. I hope to encourage her at that point. I think waiting for Jesus can be similar to that for us sometimes. We really have no idea what we're looking for. We really have no idea what it's supposed to look like, what we're even looking at, right? We might have some vague notions of what it's supposed to be like. But we don't really know. We have no categories in our experience that we can compare it to. I was talking about this with Lydia again. Like, well, you know, now that we've had four, I, I kind of know what I'm looking for. You don't get, you only get past Jesus' return once, right? <laughs> we can't look back on what it was actually like and have experience with that. We don't have any categories for the experience. So we wait, we watch, we encourage those who are hurting through the birth pangs. You be about the things that we know we can be about, what he has tasked us with. Because we have hope that there is better life yet ahead, something better than we can even imagine. This is our task as the church. We're like midwives of the coming kingdom. Comfort and we watch, proclaim the truth to a world that's watching and we can help prepare the way. How awful would it be if the midwife fell asleep while the mother was in labor. A job to do. Let's do it well. Lord, I just want to thank you <clears throat> that you have 
in your infinite wisdom, you saw it fit to humble yourself, to live among us, and to help to communicate with us in any way possible things that we can see and expect and understand. Things that are too wonderful for us to really know. That on this side of your return, it's hard for us to grasp and understand, and yet you have prepared us. You have not left us alone to that. You have revealed yourself to us. You've taught us. You've drawn us to yourself. We thank you for that gift, Lord. We thank you. You are good. We thank you that you've made a way for us. We thank you that you're faithful. We thank you, Lord. We can pursue you and know you will be with us, guide us, direct us, empower us, help stay awake. So, Lord, we pray for more of your spirit. And, Lord, we say, come soon. We're waiting expectantly. We know that it's good news. Say that in your name.